We have been looking at the book of Exodus, the story of God freeing Israel from slavery in Egypt, freeing them to follow him, to live with him. Israel is God's people. He calls them his family. And last week we saw as Israel were taking their first steps out of Egypt, God had already begun talking to them about what it looked like to be his family, to live as members of the family. Last week he said, no matter how big you get as a family, each year you should get together and have the family meal, Passover. You should tell the story about what I did to get you out of Egypt, about how I sent the tenth plague to kill the firstborn, but passed over all of your houses because you killed a lamb, you smeared its blood on the door, and then you ate of that sacrifice. No matter how big you get, do this every year. We're going to look at the same passage again this morning because God institutes another practice that he says should continue throughout generations to help keep the Israelites connected to what God had done to bring them out of Egypt. And as we hear this passage read, I want you to ask yourself this question. Is there anything in your life that is off limits to God? What would be too much for God to ask from you? Let's give ear to the reading of God's Word. A reading from Exodus chapters 12 and 13. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be a mark on, as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. 
For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. God, this morning we come again to your word and we ask that you would send your spirit to us to help us see how beautiful it is, to help us diagnose and critique our own hearts, to see uh, where we are turning for hope and for security, to be honest with ourselves and honest with you that uh, so often we don't trust you. We don't trust the plans that you have for us. We look to other things and to make our own plans. Help us to see how trustworthy you are, how faithful you are. We ask that you would uh, be with us as you press your gospel into our hearts. I ask that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. And I pray this in your son's mighty and powerful name. Amen. When Nicole and I were first married, almost everything that we owned was either handed down to us or a gift for our wedding. Plates, dishes, uh, pots, pans, silverware, all gifts for a wedding. Sofas, uh, the dining room table, the chairs, the washer, the dryer, all handed down to us. The one thing that neither of us owned that we thought we were going to have to buy was a TV. And this was 11 and a half years ago when, you know, TVs were actually relatively expensive for what you paid. You didn't get very much kind of thing. Um, And one thing you should know about me is that when it comes to big purchases, I am, shall we say, frugal. I spent a lot of time researching, a lot of time researching. I shop around to make sure I get the best deal uh, and that I'm buying something that's going to last for a while. And so we just assumed for the first couple months of our marriage, maybe half a year, we would not have a TV. Until our friends, James and Lindsay, told us, you know what, we are going to pay down some of our student debt, and so we are moving into the basement of a friend's house. The basement was fully furnished, it had a TV, it had everything that they needed. They were going to put their stuff in storage. They wanted to know if we wanted their TV. Of course we wanted their TV. And it wasn't just any TV, this was a top-of-the-line 48-inch flat screen, this is when flat screens first came out, uh, TV. And I thought to myself, this is great. For a couple years, they're paying down their debt. We'll be watching their TV, and I'll be saving up. So when they ask for it back, I'll be able to buy not, not an equivalent TV, but a better TV. I mean, this was right at the beginning of college football season. You can imagine watching college football on this 48-inch TV. We were living the high life. Until two months later when James called and said, hey, actually, we've changed our minds. We're going to move back into an apartment, and I need to come get the TV. He asked for it back. I just couldn't believe this. And, and because we were smack in the middle of college football season, I didn't have time to do all my research. I just went with the most cost-efficient thing, which was like a $500, maybe $425 after mail-in rebate, 27-inch TV. Um, going from a 48-inch flat-screen, top-of-the-line TV to a tiny 27-inch, I know this isn't 27-inch, this is what it felt like. It felt like watching a moving picture frame. And all I could think was, he took it back. He asked for it back. I was so shocked and so surprised that he was willing to interrupt my life and ask for his own TV back. That same sense of shock, maybe magnified times 10, uh, should fill us as we hear God ask for something back in this passage. In verse 2 of chapter 13, God says, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast, is mine. God does not mince words. This is not a suggestion. God is not saying, hey, um, since we're family and all, what do you think about, I don't know, giving me your firstborn? 
That's not what God is saying here. He demands it. In fact, the the command is repeated again in verse 12. You shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. Now those two iterations of the command seem the same. Consecrate to me. Set apart. But in fact, the verb that Moses uses in the second command is different. It's the Hebrew verb avar. And avar literally translated is Passover. So the, the phrase should read, you shall pass over to the Lord all that first opens the womb. Passover. And we all say, wait a minute. We know that word. We've heard it before. It takes us back to what God has just done in Egypt. To set Israel free, God sent the 10th plague to kill off the firstborn of the land. And to protect his people, he said, take a lamb, kill it, paint its blood on the doorframe. And when the, the plague comes, it will pass over you. God says, I have passed over the firstborn of Egypt, or, excuse me, of Israel. Now pass them over. You see the difference? Pass over and pass over. That's shocking to us. God said, I bought them. They are mine. Now pass them over. It's shocking, but it's easy for us to distance ourselves from it, right? This is something weird that ancient Israel did. This doesn't really have any impact on us. But remember, this is all set in the context of family. What does it mean to be a part of God's family? God says here, we're going to be a family that passes over, a Passover people. The family of God before Jesus was signified in the nation of Israel. The family of God after Jesus is signified in the church, which means if you are a Christian, if you are following Jesus, then you're part of his church and you're part of his family. God's family is a Passover people. That leads us to ask some really important questions from this passage and how it pertains to us. What do you need to pass over to God? How do you pass that over to God? And what does God pass over to you? Three questions that kind of outline our sermon this morning. Three questions that this passage will answer for us. What do you need to pass over to God? How do you pass that over to God? And what does God pass over to you? Let's start by looking at uh, what do you need to pass over to God? And in order for us to even begin to answer this question, we have to understand the role that the firstborn anything played in the life of Israel. Uh, the, the firstborn, both man and uh, animals, had many things tied to it. And I think the one word that can summarize the connotation of the firstborn is hope. Hope. The firstborn of an animal, the firstborn of man was the hope in a future. Hope in security, hope in stability, hope in future wealth. Right? Remember, Israel is leaving Egypt without any land. They don't own any piece of property. Yes, they have the, the gold and the silver that Egypt gave to them before they left, but their wealth is predominantly tied to the flocks and the herds that go with them. They were a nation of shepherds, and the Bible tells us that they leave with many animals. That is their wealth. And so whenever a female animal gave birth to a male offspring, there was hope that the flock would grow, that their wealth would continue, that they would be able to to have enough to sustain their family to eat, that they would be able to barter with other people, that they might even be able to sell some off and buy some land someday, right? Uh, A male offspring of an animal meant hope, hope for a future, hope for security, hope that they would be strong going forward. 
And that same connotation is given to the, hope, uh, to the firstborn of a woman. Whenever a, a woman gave birth to a first son, uh, that he was celebrated because the family line would continue. The family line would continue to hold on to its possessions. There was a hope for this family. There was a future. Right? Think about the captain of a football team who walks out to midfield for the coin toss and the handshake. Right? He is a representative of the whole team. Right? The hopes that the, the team wins the, the coin toss lie on this captain. Also, the attitude that the captain brings to that meeting displays the attitude of the whole team, right? If the captain walked out to midfield and was like, hey, glad we're playing today, the other team's not going to be frightened. They're not going to be intimidated. But if the captain walks out, broad shoulders, chest back, eyes up, there's going to be some intimidation going on, right? All of the hopes and future of, of the future of the team, of the family, rested on the firstborn, right? So God claiming the firstborn and demanding the firstborn back is a strike at the heart of what Israel hopes in. Why would he do that? Why would God strike at the heart of what Israel hopes in? See, God knows the twisted nature of how human hearts work. He knows that Israel, like us, takes something that is hopeful and turns it into our only source of hope. We anchor our lives, our security, our safety, our wealth, our comfort on that thing. And for Israel, it was the firstborn. As long as we have a firstborn son, as long as we have a male offspring of our sheep or our cow or our goat, whatever it is, we're safe. We're safe. We can trust and hope in that one. What is that for you? What is that thing that is hopeful that you have turned into your only source of hope. Maybe it's your job title or your resume. Maybe it is the family image that you project to other people. Maybe it is the zip code that you live in. Maybe it is your Instagram account, your reputation. I'm not really sure what it is for you. Uh, But for me, I can tell you that it has to do with uh, knowledge and being right. I'm not done the uh, Neogram personality profile that seems to be super popular right now. Uh, But if I did, I know that I'd be whatever number the fact checker is or like the corrector, whatever you want to say. One of the things that I've put my hope in is being right, is making sure that everybody knows that I'm right. See, I draw security from that, comfort from that. Stability in my life is based often upon whether or not I know that I'm right. I am not a fun person to go to bar trivia with. I am not a fun person to play Trivial Pursuit with. And it's not because I know everything. It's because I value being right over having fun. I value people knowing that I am right. It's so important to me that it kills so many situations that I'm in. What is that for you? Often it's a a quiet, subconscious thing that happens in our lives every day that we run to when things seem to be out of control, out of order. It's our source of stability and for our hope. Joe White, who is a pastor in Orlando, Florida, was the speaker at Grace's All Church Retreat earlier this month. And he asked a helpful diagnostic question for you to ask yourself to help identify what is that thing that I run to for hope and for security that isn't God. He said, imagine the worst day of your life. 
things are falling apart, people are being mean to you, you can't make headway in any of your projects. If you have kids, they're going nuts. If you don't have kids, you're feeling the weight of that. You lay down at night. What is the thing that you say, at least I have this? For me on that day, it's at least I was right about this. At least I knew how to do this and I was right about it. Chances are, whatever fills in that blank for you, it's something that is good, something that is hopeful, but the sin in our hearts have twisted it and turned it into our only source of hope. God says that is your firstborn. That's what your hope for your future, for your security, your safety, and your comfort is. God says that's mine. Pass it over. What does it even look like? How do we pass that over to God? That's the second question we come to. How do we pass that over to God? And actually, in this passage, God gives us a pattern for how we pass things over based on how Israel passed over their firstborn. Excuse me. Verse 15. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb. See, for the animals, it literally meant sacrificing them and giving them back to God. God had allowed this female animal to give birth to a male offspring. God says, give it back. Israel was called to sacrifice. And in the land of the Canaanites that Israel is walking towards, that would have applied to children as well. If the God demanded the sacrifice of the firstborn animal, he would have demanded the sacrifice of the firstborn son. And so they would have killed the firstborn son of their wives. But God says, we are not going to do that. We are going to do things differently. Verse 15 continues. But all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. We are to redeem the firstborn sons, Israel is told. And what is redeem? Redeem has this connotation of purchasing. God says, I am willing to see the blood of an animal as substituting for the blood of your sons. Does that sound familiar? That takes us right back to what God did to get them out of Egypt to begin with. God said the firstborn of the land is going to die. Their blood will be shed. But if you kill a lamb and you paint its blood on the doorframe, your firstborn will be safe. God says continue this practice throughout your generations. When you have a firstborn son, kill an animal instead. Let the blood of the animal stand in the place of the blood of the of your son. God provides a way out, a substitute. So families would offer sacrifices for their firstborn sons. And you're told in this passage, uh, in some of the verses that we cut out, it's a lamb. But as God unveils and fleshes out the law throughout the rest of Exodus and into Deuteronomy, he says, I understand that the economic principles of Israel are going to change and not everybody is going to be able to afford a lamb. And so he institutes different sacrifices that are acceptable for the firstborn. We actually see this at play in the life of Jesus. In the gospel according to Luke chapter 2, after Jesus has been born, Mary and Joseph take Jesus up to the temple. Luke chapter 2 verse 22, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they, Mary and Joseph, brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That section of the law is written later in Deuteronomy. Not a lamb, 
a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. See, Mary and Joseph were poor. They could not afford a lamb. But buying these two birds, whatever they were, was a significant financial hit to them. It really dug into their savings, if you will. See, in either case, whether offering the firstborn animal as a sacrifice or offering an animal sacrifice in the place of the firstborn son, this act required an Israelite family to hand over something precious, something valuable, something that their security, their stability, their comfort, and their hope rested on. And this wasn't just an arbitrary act. God didn't say, hey, you need to do this year in and year out just because, well, it's a nice routine. But what he is doing is having them re-engage with the reality that the only reason they have any future at all is because he provided for them. The only reason they have any hope at all is because God accepted the blood of a sacrifice instead of the blood of their children. And so each time that they have a firstborn in their family or a firstborn in their flocks, They're to re-engage with the fact that God provides for them ultimately. Always has in the past and always will. They hand over this animal, this valuable thing, the thing in which their wealth and their hope is placed, and they say, God, you have to provide without this. We trust you to provide without this thing. How do we begin to give something up that we put our hope and our trust, and our security in. It's not easy, and oftentimes it's stripped from us. This idea about being right comes with uh, having knowledge and being, being smart. And all throughout high school, that's what I was told. You're smart. You're so smart. You took all these AP classes. So proud of you for doing well. I've talked about these headaches that I have, chronic headaches every day, that stem from treatment I had for cancer when I was a kid. And they started to come on, these headaches, when uh, I was getting ready to go to seminary for the first time. I was going to graduate school, and I was having these headaches, and nobody knew, no doctors knew or understood where they were coming from, so they were trying all this different medication. And each medication had this fantastic side effect, Um, and each one was different. And one of our favorite ones was Topamax. Topamax is a a prescription that helps uh, uh, diminish seizures in the brain. Uh, It's known commonly uh, in the medical community as Topa Stupid because one of its side effects is short-term memory loss. So I'm taking this drug as I'm getting ready to go to seminary. I'm reading all of these books critically, and I can't think. I have no way to formulate ideas And all of a sudden, this smartness, this knowledge, this drive to be right was taken away. A lot of times, that's what happens in our lives. We build our hope, our security, our future upon something. We're looking to one thing as our ultimate source of hope. And when it's gone, we're devastated. Our identity has been ripped out from underneath us. So here's what God invites us to do. Instead of waiting for that day to happen sacrifice or redeem that thing now? What does that look like? Well, let me say this. If your hope and your security and your comfort is anchored in some sin, some pattern of sin that you run to when things are out of control to help comfort yourself, maybe it's some kind of attitude, maybe it's some kind of aggressive behavior, maybe it's some kind of addiction, gambling, drinking, pornography, drugs, whatever it is, kill it. 
kill it. Do whatever you have to do to get that out of your life right now. But if you're like me and you take good things and you turn them into ultimate things, you take something that is hopeful and you turn it into your only source of hope, God says, redeem it. How do you redeem it? The same way Israel did. Give it up. This is where fasting comes into play. Fasting is a great applicable way for us to give up the anchor of hope that we're holding to in this world. Maybe it means turning Facebook and Instagram off of your phone. Maybe it means blocking Zillow from your computer browser so you're not constantly looking for another place to move to that's better than the place you're in now. Maybe it means not checking your 401k or your stocks for a year. Maybe it means committing to not talking to other parents about the successes of your children. Maybe it means skipping a meal or two. Maybe it means giving up alcohol for a week. Spend your, neighbor, spend your summer excuse me, in your neighborhood rather than trying to have the best vacation possible. Give up that thing that your security and your comfort and your stability and your hope are tied to and ask that God would become your hope and your security and your comfort. That's how fasting works. That's how redeeming the hope and security and comfort desire you have works. Giving up the anchor you think is the only way you can have it and asking God to give it to you. How, this doesn't make any sense to us, right? If we find something that brings stability and security, we want to hold on tight. We want to hold as tight as possible and never let go. Why would someone be willing to part with something that is so fundamental, so powerful? This is where the other part of the transaction with Israel comes in. God claims the firstborn. He demands the firstborn be returned to him. And says he's willing to take a sacrifice instead. And the Israelites get to go back home with their firstborn. The security and the safety and the comfort that they desire. They return. What does God pass over to you? What does God pass over to you? See, this whole explanation about how consecrating the firstborn, sacrificing the animals, redeeming the sons... It all takes place in the context of a conversation between a a father and a son. Moses is telling Israelite fathers, this is what you're supposed to do throughout your generations. Consecrate your firstborn. Sacrifice your animals. Kill an animal instead of your son. And in, in time to come, that son who was passed over will say, why do we do this? This is all banked upon the fact that God actually accepts an animal sacrifice in the place of the sacrifice of the firstborn. They get to keep their firstborn son. This reminds me of the story of Abraham way back in the beginning of Genesis. Abraham and his wife Sarah wanted to have kids forever. And God came and met Abraham and said, guess what? I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And Abraham's like, how? I have no children. And God says, I'm going to take care of it. I'll give you a son. And they had to wait even longer. For almost a hundred years, they waited for a son. And finally, God gave them Isaac. And then God said, your firstborn son is mine. Sacrifice him. And Abraham 
climbed the mountain with the wood for the altar and Isaac as the sacrifice, knowing God's going to have to provide some way. That's it. That's all he knew. And right as he was getting ready to obey God and sacrifice his son, God said, wait, I will accept animal blood instead of the blood of your son. And in fact, look, there is a ram caught in some thorns nearby. So they sacrifice the ram instead of Isaac. They go back down the mountain and Abraham has his son with him. That's not how he expected that to go. And I can almost guarantee you that Abraham looked at his son differently. Instead of just Isaac, my son, he was Isaac, my son, that God gave back to me. There was something powerful about how God had interacted with Abraham. This is how God interacts and operates with his family. In diagnosing their heart, the heart of Israel, he says, I know that you're going you're gonna to hope only in your firstborn. Think that your life is secure only when you have a firstborn son. Think that your wealth is tied to the firstborn male animal of your flock. So give it back. And when you have a son, give me an animal instead and I'll let you keep the security, the future, the hope that you see in your firstborn son. But I'm giving it to you. It's not yours because of your own effort. I'm giving you the security you look for. I'm giving you the hope that you long for. I'm giving this to you, Israel. God interacts with his family in the same way today. He says, you're taking good things. You're turning them into ultimate things. Hopeful things you're looking to as your only source of hope. Give them to me. And God gives us the security we long for. He provides us the stability that we long for. He gives us the hope that we long for. Not from those things, but from his son. See, this is the great twist of the gospel narrative. From Abraham through to the night that Israel left Egypt and throughout generations, God says, sacrifice your sons to me, but I'll take animal blood instead. Firstborn son, I'll take animal blood. Firstborn son, I'll take animal blood. Eventually, a firstborn son had to die. As we know from the book of Hebrews, the blood of bulls and goats do not cover up for the blood of men. And the twist of Scripture is that the firstborn son that dies is not one of ours, but is God's. God's firstborn son. Jesus is called the firstborn of all creation, willing to come and to die so that his blood can cover us. Right? This, is, this is the beauty of how God's exchange, our sin, is given to Jesus. Jesus' righteousness is given to us. This is how this works. If you are following Jesus, you're trusting that his blood covers you. And you're passed over twice. You're passed over first from the penalty of your sin. Just like the plague passed over those houses in Egypt. We are passed over because we're covered in the blood of Jesus. But we're also passed over like the firstborn son, from death into life, from loneliness into God's family. The blood of Jesus is our security, is our hope, is our comfort. And sometimes it takes really hard things and difficult losses for us to learn that. The first summer that I spent living in Kenya as a missionary, four days a week we drive into the slum, Kibera. It's the second largest slum in Africa. And each day, as our van pulled up, 
all the kids that we would work with would come running down to the edge of the slum. And they'd walk with us through the twisted, tight little roads and streets of the slum to the church. And one little boy, Brian, for some reason, wanted to hold my hand every time. Brian was about six years old, but he looked like he was four. He was so malnourished. And he had an intestinal parasite that caused his stomach to swell and to harden. And he carried this pink little backpack and these flip-flops that didn't fit. And he didn't speak any English at all. And every day we'd walk all the way into the church holding hands and all the way back out at the end of the day. Until one day I showed up and Brian wasn't there. I didn't think anything of it. He was probably a little sick, not a big deal. The next time that we went in to the slum, to the church, uh, there was a woman in the office and she was crying. And I sat down with her and the pastor's wife who kind of ran some of the relationships with the families said, this is Brian's mom and uh, he's fallen and his stomach ruptured and he's died. And it was crushing. The, the whole team that I was with, the internship team, we didn't know Brian. We didn't know anything about Brian. He couldn't speak to us in English and we couldn't speak to him in his native tribal tongue. We didn't know anything about him, but we were devastated by it. And so one evening later that summer, as we were sitting down talking with the pastor about it, we were all just wrestling with the fact, like, what good are we doing here? Like, how can we not save more of these kids, save their lives? And he said, that, that is what you're doing. The only hope that we have to save anybody here is the hope that they will trust in Jesus. The hope that that means that no matter what happens to them in their earthly life, we will be able to see them and celebrate with them when we are brought home into God's kingdom. Right? The, the truth that he was imparting was that if you're under the blood of Jesus, then you're part of the family. And God always, always secures, always stabilizes his family. And he gives them a future. The death of Jesus is our guarantee that we will be brought home. And I walked away from that summer confident because of the, the faith that, his fam- that Brian's family had in Jesus, because that God has promised to take care of his families, that I'll see Brian again. I walked away from Kenya that summer confident that I would see Brian again because of the blood of Jesus. In an amazing twist of God's sense of humor, eight years later, when I went to Africa again, to Kenya, we pulled up in our bus outside of the slum, and there was Brian. And I was so confused. I was so, I, I didn't understand. There had been a, a translation error for us, and it was Brian's brother who had died. It wasn't Brian. But the stability, the security, and the hope I had did not come from the fact that he was standing in front of me. But the fact that he had put his faith in the blood of Jesus, and that whether I ever see Brian again or not, I know that we will see each other as we sit at the family table of God and celebrate for all eternity. Hope and security and stability come from Jesus, not from anything that this world has to offer. And God invites us to take a serious look at our hearts And to recognize that we are anchoring ourselves to things that seem to provide hope, seem to provide stability, but in fact are fleeting. And he offers us an opportunity to let those things go. 
to sacrifice them, to redeem them, and to see that he is there in that loss, in the the discomfort, in the pain of losing that thing. He is our hope. He is our strength, our stability, and our security. And we're to engage in this practice all the time. Once we realize, I'm putting my hope in this thing, God says, sacrifice, redeem, and I'll give you back the security and the comfort that you're looking for. This is how the gospel works over and over again, every day of our lives. Recognize that that we are idolizing things. Recognize our sin. Give it up to God. Receive his forgiveness and the security that he gives us through the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. God, once again, uh, we hear the call and the invitation of your word, and we confess that it, it sounds easy and simple, but we know that it's incredibly hard to let go of these things of the world that we cling so tightly to, to our success, to our resume, to the way we appear to others. God, the only way that we can do this is if you help us. Please, gently remove these things from our hearts. Remove our idols from our lives. Help us to see the solid foundation that Jesus is. Help us to feel the security that he brings. And help us to know that our future is secure because he died and rose again for us. We thank you that your promises are sure that you are a faithful God who keeps all of his promises to his people. And we thank you that you invite us into your family, not by asking us to do work, but to receive the work done for us on the cross. We pray this in Jesus' mighty and powerful name. Amen.